This is the Annex, a sociology podcast. I'm Joseph Cohen from the City University of New York, Queens College. I'm Leslie Hankson from Georgetown University. And I'm Gabriel Rossman from UCLA. Today, author-nominated peer reviewers. Our guest is Christina Sharp from the Communications Department at the University of Washington. Our discussion was recorded on Wednesday, May 7th, 2019. So Nature recently reported on a study of peer review at the Swiss National Science Foundation, uh, and it found that peer reviewers are four times more likely to give a grant applicant a positive score when they were chosen by the grant applicant. Uh, uh, Basically, and the finding triggered calls to stop using peer review recommendations by the applicant. So the idea is, is that I guess people, well, I mean, the the charitable interpretation is that everybody understands who will see the true value in their project. And then the uncharitable one is everybody's asking friends who are in on the scam to, uh, you know, get some research money. Obviously, there are people who play this game. I, I remember in my career, I can remember at least two occasions where I met and got along with people who I would characterize as characters in a semi-professional setting. And then I got mm-hmm. review requests from funding agencies for projects that I had like absolutely no expertise in. And like the right thing to do there is to say, no, you shouldn't review things that you don't do. And you shouldn't interview, you know, stuff based on personal relations. Uh, but uh, what? Yeah. Cause that's not how, not it how it's supposed to work now, how it does work <laughs> and how it's supposed to work yeah. are two different things, of course. But on the other hand, you might be like, you might think, well, science relies on trust to work. And if we don't take authors or, you know, grant applicants recommendations, how are we going to deal with that? Well, you know, are we going to have to, that puts a lot of burden on journals and the grant makers. So sh- what do you think? Should we do it with applicant or author recommendations or uh, is there anything, uh, any, any sort of practical changes that should be made or is this a whole lot of nothing in your opinion? I think we caught, did we cover, did we touch on this? you know, at least like a little bit, uh, when, when we had Christine Percheski on, I can't remember if, if that was part of the recorded hmm. bit or if it was like a little bit of What's behind that with the you, scenes what do you remember? chatter. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, like, I, I, I basically, like, I remember saying, yeah, I, you know, it took forever for a journal that will hmm. not be named to find reviewers. Uh, and, you know, and while, like, and while I understood that it probably w- would have totally cut down on the time if I had just given them a list of recommended mm-hmm. reviewers, I, I just was committed. I, I just felt that that was like antithetical to like the whole kind of idea of blind review. If I'm giving you the mm-hmm. names of people and there's a likelihood that you're going to take them up, that it just seems, it just seems totally wrong to me. Um, even though it does actually serve the purpose of helping to cut down on the amount of time that it takes to identify reviewers and not just identify reviewers, but identify reviewers who would be likely to review the piece, you know, because even though they don't, they, in theory, they don't know whose piece this is i mean if you're in the same networks you kind of understand you kind of know mm-hmm. whose work this is so wait do you, you feel it's unethical i i think it's unethical so i i would draw a big distinction 
So we're conflating two issues here. And sometimes in reality, they go together, right? They can be correlated. But one issue is recommending reviewers. And another issue is um, reviewers who know who the Mm -hmm. author is. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's a two by two, right? I mean, there may be a certain weight on the diagonal, Mm -hmm. but it is a two by two. So it's entirely possible to recommend a reviewer who has no idea that you wrote the paper. Um, and you know, I mean, so I am, um, I'm an editor at social science. And so I get to, you know, nothing's blind to me and all in the cover letters, I'll sometimes see that they request me as the editor to be assigned to it. Um, but I, I have no idea who that person is. Um, it's just that they looked on our, you know, masthead, saw who the reviewers are and thought, oh, that Mm. guy does culture. So I'll request him, you know, or something like that. Uh, or it could be that, um, you know, sometimes you'll know who somebody wrote a paper because, oh, yeah, I remember that paper. I saw it at ASA. Mm-hmm. But they may not have even known that you were in the room, right? So um, so I, I think it's possible to, to know who wrote a paper without being recommended. And it's also possible to recommend just because you think, oh, yeah, you know who would like this paper? Peter Behrman. I'm going right. to recommend Peter Behrman. So, you know, it's just... To a certain extent, this is kind of on the author to recommend people who you think would like the paper or at least are working in that area um, without them having been someone who, um, you know, is necessarily aware and definitely uh, not someone who's given feedback on it, right? So, like, I consider it ethical to recommend a reviewer, even if I know they were in the room when I presented the paper at ASA, but if they... um, if they read a, a draft of the manuscript or something like that, I would never recommend that. Basically, if you if you can be in the if you could plausibly be in the acknowledgments, you should never right. be recommended. Oh, so you so you think that there should be kind of like this arm's length kind of rule, like we have for you know for tenure and promotion letters. Well, what's funny is sometimes tenure and promotion letters, you'll get a, a letter from somebody's advisor or something like that. You're uh, not supposed to have that. Well, at least not here, but. Well, you know, UCLA, we're a little bit more. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so. Well, doesn't um, that, though, Gabriel, does. Yeah, but, but I also think it's important for kind of some of the reasons Leslie was getting at is that, you know, it's uh, it's not, there, there's two reasons reviewers could not like a paper. One is because the paper sucks, and the other is because they mm-hmm. just don't get it, right? And Yeah. And, and it's actually really hard for managing editors, for, especially at a generalist journal, to figure out who are appropriate editor, excuse me, who are appropriate reviewers who would understand, uh, you know, what a paper is getting at. Because a lot of times when, you know, you don't like a paper, it's not because the paper is bad in some abstract sense. It's just because it doesn't belong in mm-hmm. your area. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so I've reviewed a couple papers that were about risk society, which to me seems like some, um, you know, environmental doomsday cult, not a, uh, you know, an actual subfield of social science. But, you know, so that's an indication, not that those papers were bad necessarily, but that I'm a bad reviewer to be assigned right. those papers. And so, you know, and, and then conversely, you know, I've written stuff on, you know, categories or diffusion or whatever. And, you know, maybe it goes to a reviewer who's, um, you know, much more interested in hermeneutic approaches to culture. And of course, they're mm-hmm. not going to like it. So, you know, and, and like I've had this experience where one of my grad students, like ten years ago, wrote a paper on, um, you know, now former grad student. Uh, we don't have that long for our mm-hmm. time to degree. 
uh, you know, wrote a paper on local TV news coverage of crime. And it was a newspaper, right? It was about, you know, media production. And, uh, and the, the editor ended up assigning it to a bunch of mm. criminologists. Mm-hmm. And so the criminologists are like, you know, why isn't there more on the demographic correlates of peak crime years and, you know, deterrence right. and incapacitation, stuff like that? So, well, it's because it's a media paper. So, exactly. And, um, and so I, I think it's actually important to write a cover letter where you clearly say, A, this is the literature I'm speaking to, or better yet, these are the two literatures I'm speaking to, or the three literatures I'm speaking to. And then you give examples of people, but I think it's kind of a matter of trust between the author and the editor that you're not saying, oh, um, you know who'd be perfect to review this paper? Joe Cohen and Leslie Hinkson, who I went to grad school with and are right. close friends. You know, <laughs> yeah, exactly. but but to just say, but to say, you know, so I, I, I think I could ethically recommend Huggy Rao, you know, who I've met at like a conference or something like three times, but, you know, we're not especially close. I, I, I respect mm-hmm. him a lot. Um, but, you know, Huggy and I have had a total of probably 90 minutes of conversation. So... Um, I think I could ethically recommend Huggy review one of my papers, but I don't think I could ethically re- recommend that Joe recommend one of my papers. Although, ironically, I once reviewed one of my co-authors' hmm. papers. Uh, so I, got, I once got assigned. So uh, Oliver Schilke and I wrote a paper on um, you know, the Oscars as a market information regime. And then I got assigned a paper to review on wine... Uh, wine appellations as a market information regime. And I reviewed it and everything. And I had no idea until after I reviewed it that Oliver mm-hmm. wrote it. Uh, mm. So, you know, it just because, you know, th- this person is, you know, one of my closest collaborators in the mm-hmm. discipline. Uh, he just hadn't had mentioned it. He's just so goddamn productive mm-hmm. that, you know, he writes more papers than he can tell all his co authors about. But like- <laughs> and uh, so I don't know if he recommended me or not, but, you know, it, I was actually able to review it impartially because. Even though it was written by a close friend and collaborator, I didn't know that he wrote it. But shouldn't we make something of the fact that like there is an identifiable bias in author name nominated reviewers? Like, should we put an should an editor put an asterisk beside uh, an author nominated reviewer? And well, I think there's two dimensions, right? Where if if the bias is because they are working within your paradigm, I don't consider that a bias. Right. I consider that good editing to assign somebody like that. And if the author can help that, that's great. If the bias is because they favor mm-hmm. you, you know, because you're friends and there's a conflict of interest, then that is a problem. So then how can we figure out how to disentangle that? I mean, how like as an editor, as an editor how do you say, you know what, I want this to be as objective a process as possible. I also want it to be as efficient a process as possible, right? How do I figure out how to use, you know, these recommendations in such a way that, you know, I'm, you know what, I'm not kind of like tipping the scales in favor of people who actually use the um, reviewer recommendation as a way to just get, you know, whatever, get their social network involved to help ensure their publication. Yeah, I actually have experienced that because we have a weird system at social science where we pretty much only, I mean, not only, but 80% of the time we assign reviewers from our reviewer pool. So unless somebody's named somebody who happens mm-hmm. to be in our reviewer pool, which is fairly small, it's like 50 people, um, then uh, I don't go mm-hmm. with their recommendations. But, you know, that might be a good question for, say, Omar. I think, too, that um, 
there's other ways that people know that it's someone's paper. Um, so like with my mm. estrangement research, there aren't many of us who do it. So like, I don't even have right. to like everyone's going to, I mean, for the most part, a lot of people might guess that it's my paper or guess that I might be reviewing a paper if they're writing about estrangement. So even without the request, there's still like ways that people might know that you have a paper or you might guess who your reviewer is that I don't think that editors can mm -hmm. ever mitigate completely. Well, I, I think that's true, but that's always a probabilistic guess, right? So I, I once got a nasty email from somebody who was like, you know, oh, you're a fucking snob because you went to Princeton and now you're at UCLA and you don't realize you just lucked out in life and how dare you give my paper a bad review. And I'm like, I have no idea what the fuck you're talking about. I was not your reviewer. And, you know, and then I ended up having a pleasant conversation with the person and basically told them he needs to chill the fuck out and, you know, not try and pick fights with people. And, you know, as it happens, I'm actually completely aware that, uh, you know, I have a much better career than in the counterfactual where I started grad school in 2004 and went on the market in 2010. Um, you know, but, uh, you know, so, I mean, you can have guesses, but you don't actually know, sure. right? And it, it may be that, I, I, partly it depends on how small the field is, right? But like, if, if somebody reviews a manuscript on the Oscars, they might think, oh, that's probably Rossman's paper because he's written two papers on the Oscars. But, it, you know, there's actually half a dozen people who've, publish sociology articles on the Oscars. So how do you know it's me and not Olaf Sorensen mm -hmm. or somebody? Uh, I think uh, by counting the number of times you or Sorensen are cited yeah. <laughs> within that piece. That's well, uh, well, that's true. But I also think, <laughs> that, so I actually think it's important to not do the author site removed thing because I think that actually makes it more obvious. No, me too. So yeah. do I. <laughs> yeah, like if it says like in an analysis of 19,853, uh, you know, uh, films from 1927 to 2005, 2005, you know, where status, you know, where the credit centrality was used as a metric, you know, author removed. <laughs> it's like, well, you know, that's either me, Nicola Sparza, or Phil Bonasich. Yeah, you're like, right? Whereas on, if, if the citation's in there, you know, um, you know, it could just be that it's Olaf Sorensen and he likes our paper. Yeah, you know, as, you know, Melania says, be best, people. Be best. <laughs> You've been listening to The Annex, the sociology podcast. A special thank you to Christina Sharp from the University of Washington. Christina wrote, It was the straw that broke the camel's back, exploring the distancing processes, communicatively constructed in parent-child estrangement backstories in the Journal of Family Communication. We're on the web, sociocast.org slash annex, on Twitter at Sociannex, and on Facebook, The Annex Sociology Podcast, a special thank you to our senior producer for 2018-2019, Lisseth Moreno. On behalf of Leslie Hinkson and Gabriel Rossman, I'm Joe Cohen. Thanks for listening and have a great summer. Bye.